Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 372 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. So, do you feel that Christmas and New Year never happened yet? Yeah, me too. A huge thank you to listener and my good friend Gemma Gold for researching and writing this week's story. It is such an extraordinary case from the northwest of England, and it highlights the dangers of chat rooms and online fantasy worlds, and how one person's fantasy had major consequences. It is the stuff of absolute nightmares for parents, and this is a two-part story which will conclude next week. I'm delighted the show is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide by simplifying selling online and in person so that you can successfully grow your business. Shopify covers all your sales channels and even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning any of those tiresome new skills in coding or design. And with 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. I remember a side hustle I set up a few years ago, but it was so difficult to actually sell the product and most importantly get paid. I used to sit for hours changing the pricing and offers when I needed to be working on my sales and marketing strategy. A friend recommended Shopify and it completely transformed my business. It just made everything so easy to do, leaving me to focus on what was really important. And what I love about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash truecrime. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash truecrime to take your business to the next level today. shopify.co.uk slash truecrime. Okay, before we begin looking into the events of today's case, let's set some context with our never copied guest of the month and year game. I wonder why that is. Top of the UK and Australian music charts was Bring Me to Life by Effervescence. Across the pond, number one on the US album charts was Luther Vandross with Dance With Me. For those of you who enjoy children's books, this month saw the fifth book in the Harry Potter novel series with Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix selling a whopping 5 million copies in the first 24 hours. The Spirit Rover was launched beginning NASA's Mars Rover mission. 2020 cricket was officially born this month with the first match taking place between Hampshire Hawks and Sussex Sharks at a sold-out Rose Bowl, and actor Gregory Peck died at the age of 87. In true crime news this month, the now defunct and never missed News of the World published a photo of Ian Huntley in his cell in Woodford Prison. It transpired that an undercover reporter had managed to secure a job in the prison and had been appointed Huntley's guard. 
So did you guess the month and year? It was June 2003. So close, right? Just a year out again. There's always next week. Today's story comes from Altrincham in the northwest of England. It's got a population of about 50,000 and it's located about 10 miles southwest of Manchester and 180 miles northwest of London. It is, of course, most famous for, well, on with today's story. The 29th of June 2003 was an unusually hot day. The majority of the UK had been sweltering in a heatwave and the temperatures were at the warmest they'd been since that major heatwave of 1976. As the day was drawing to a close, the normal peace of the market town of Altrincham was shattered as the unmistakable screech of sirens approached. Shoppers and drinkers at the various pubs and bars were shocked to see them descend upon the Goose Green Town Square area. Aside from the occasional shoplifter, crime was very rare in this area, but the events of this day relieved the town shocked to the very core. The emergency workers rushed down to a small alleyway to be greeted by the most horrific scene, a young teenager lying in a pool of blood, a six-inch kitchen knife lying next to his body. His breath was laboured and he wasn't in a good way. It was clear he'd been stabbed twice in his torso and the only witness to the crime, the boy's best friend, was in shock just beside him. As the ambulance rushed him to nearby Withenshaw Hospital, the police quickly set about trying to establish exactly what had happened. The 999 call had come in moments earlier, at a little before 8pm, when a clearly frightened and shaken young man had told the operator that his friend had been stabbed by an unknown assailant dressed all in black. The police were quick to release a public appeal asking for anyone with information to come forward and very soon there were calls confirming sightings of this man dressed in black and a baseball cap. There was a genuine fear in the town that with no apparent motive this man could strike again at any moment. People were fearful of being out and about. Parents were reluctant to let their children out of their sight. Just who had attacked this teenager and why? But before we can find these questions out, we first need to head back to the events of a few months previously. If you recall, the early noughties were a very different time to now. Briefly, the mighty Leeds United thrived, with the internet becoming widely available and affordable to more and more people. These were the days before Facebook and Twitter, before many of us had a mobile phone, I know, right? Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, Discord. And these were the days where chat rooms reigned supreme. Do you remember the chat room? The most popular of these chat room providers at the time was MSN Chat. Teenagers who then as now were more clued into new tech would spend all day at school with their friends, come home and log on to MSN Chat, entering chat rooms to continue talking to their friends as well as other users. Many were anonymous users, whilst others were people you knew in real life. Each new conversation would usually start the same way. Hi, ASL. For those too young to remember, ASL stood for Age, Sex, Location. 16-year-old Mark was not unlike any other teenager of his age. An only child to middle-class parents, he was popular at school, he seemed to attract girls, and he was sporty. 
But like many young adults of his age, he was not always at ease chatting to those he found attractive. He studied hard applying himself at school, and he had aspirations to go on to study business at college. Like many others of his age, he found the internet, and specifically the chat rooms, to be a super exciting place to be. Not least because being in a chat room allowed him to be relaxed and at ease, which in turn allowed him to chat to people, especially girls. And he found it much easier to do so when it wasn't face-to-face, and in this arena Mark flourished. His main chat room of choice was the Manchester Teens chat room. It was just another day in March 2003 when Mark logged into the chat room as normal. Shortly afterwards, a new user joined the room. Her name was Rachel underscore West. Mark stared for a while at the list of usernames on the right-hand side of the screen before plucking up the courage and instigating a private conversation with this new member. He was excited to find out that Rachel was also 16, she was local and she worked at a gym. She was certainly ticking the boxes so far. Mark became instantly smitten with Rachel and they quickly grew close, chatting to each other for hours in a way that is sometimes easier online than face-to-face, as it's sometimes more straightforward to share personal information. Mark couldn't believe his luck and at her request he turned on his webcam so she could see him. Rachel explained that due to a bad history in MSN chat she wasn't comfortable turning on her webcam, but Mark was fine with that. He wanted her to feel safe and he didn't want to push the issue. Days later, 14-year-old John entered the Manchester Teens chat room and was introduced to Mark as Rachel's little stepbrother. The two hit it off immediately and fast became friends, bonding over their shared love of football, gaming and films, especially the biographical thriller Catch Me If You Can, based on the true story of a teenage prankster who grew up to become one of the world's most wanted men. As their friendship blossomed, they spent hours gaming with each other, turning their webcabs on, so it was like they were in the same room as each other. And as is often the case with teenage boys, their conversations would frequently turn to X-rated topics. In each other, they'd found their best friend, the one who just gets you no matter what. But in all of this, Mark was really desperate to see Rachel, who he'd come to view of his girlfriend. He would often spend hours eagerly watching and waiting for the pop-up box to say she was online. Over time, as the budding relationship developed, these conversations between them turned sexual, and Mark would, at the request of Rachel, turn on his webcam and strip naked for her. Their teen romance deepened, and Mark was utterly infatuated, eventually plucking up the courage to say those three magic words, I love you. He was elated when Rachel replied, I love you too. Over the next few weeks, Mark, John and Rachel spent all their spare time together in the chat room, even developing their own insider jokes and uh, special language that they used to communicate with each other without other users in the chat room knowing what they were talking about. As things progressed, inevitably meeting up in person was discussed. Due to Rachel's busy schedule, a date couldn't be secured, but that didn't stop Mark and John meeting up and hanging out. Mark wasn't just keen to keep John happy for the sake of his and Rachel's relationship. He genuinely liked the younger guy, John. In April 2003, a new user joined the Manchester Teens chat room, Kevin McGregor. He stood out from the moment he entered, mainly due to the bright pink font he insisted on writing in, 
claiming as he did so that he was gay and he was proud of it. He liked to shop and would boast crudely about his foot fetish and even claimed to be a stalker, almost as a badge of honour. The usual chat room users were very dubious of Kevin, but Mark soon discovered a horrifying secret. Kevin had been threatening Rachel and John. John even confided in Mark that he feared that Kevin was following home from school. Mark reassured his best friend that Kevin was unlikely to act on anything he said, but soon Kevin started taunting Mark with personal details about the lives of Rachel, John and even Mark himself. Mark by now was convinced that Kevin was dangerous. After all, how else would he know such personal details if he hadn't been stalking them? Events took a sinister turn when Kevin threatened to kidnap and rape Rachel if Mark did not meet his demands. Kevin sent Mark a message stating if he did not show Mark his feet and masturbate on webcam for him, he would go through with this threat. Mark was terrified and turned to Rachel. He told her what Kevin had said and explained that he had no choice but to do what Kevin had demanded in order to keep her safe. Rachel reassured him that he didn't need to do anything for her, but Mark loved her and was adamant he would do all he could to save her from danger. Mark proceeded to go through with Kevin's request, feeling he had saved his girlfriend from an unthinkable fate. This ordeal only seemed to strengthen the love between Rachel and Mark and they soon made a plan to finally meet up in person. Mark was so excited he could barely sleep as he anticipated the meeting. He boarded the bus and made the near-hour journey from his home in Stockport to Altrincham to meet up with Rachel, but when he arrived she wasn't there. Several hours passed by and yet Rachel still didn't show up. Eventually, a desolate Mark made his way home and as soon as he got in, he logged online, hoping to see a message from Rachel, but instead there was a message from Kevin. Tentatively, Mark opened the message and his heartbreak turned to horror as he began to read in horrific detail about what had happened to Rachel. Kevin had made good on his threat. He told Mark how he'd kidnapped Rachel with associates, gang-raping her, and then he murdered her. He even went as far as to taunt Mark, saying, You weren't there for her when she needed you, no matter how much she screamed and called out your name. Understandably, Mark plunged into a deep depression. This is incredibly difficult stuff to deal with at any age, let alone at just 16. His school grades slipped and he became withdrawn and sullen as he secretly mourned his online girlfriend. Feeling he couldn't go to the police for fear of reprisal from Kevin or tell his parents, he turned his grief inwards. Meanwhile, John was grieving for his stepsister and the best friends confided in each other. But Mark was becoming increasingly distant. Mark became less interested in hanging out online, but when he did log into the chat room, he was only interested in talking to girls. He soon struck up a friendship with a newcomer called Lindsay East. Lindsay was kind, attentive and sympathetic to Mark. She consoled him as he grieved for Rachel, and it wasn't long before they started to flirt. Mark soon fell for Lindsay, and with the feelings being reciprocated, to show his feelings for her and at her request, Mark performed further sex acts on his webcam for her pleasure. Telling him that she trusted him implicitly, Lindsay soon confided in Mark. She told him she wasn't a teenager from Manchester after all, 
She was in fact a junior agent for MI6. And the reason she joined the Manchester Teens chat room was because John was under government protection. She explained that John was an unwitting target of the psychopathic, ruthless, self-confessed killer and rapist Kevin and she needed Mark's help to track Kevin down and bring him to justice, stressing it was of the utmost importance that John never found out he was under threat or was being watched by government spies. Although it was a lot to take in, Mark was intrigued. He loved James Bond and was excited at the prospect of knowing a real-life spy. A few days after these revelations, Mark received a postmarked email from Lindsay, which had been set up automatically to send in the event of her death. In the email, Lindsay explained that she'd failed in her mission and she urged Mark to protect John. Mark was determined, having failed to protect Rachel, that he would not get it wrong for a second time and he would protect his best friend. By the end of April 2003, Mark's online world took a bizarre twist one day. When he was online in the chat room, he saw Rachel suddenly reappear. Mark was initially overjoyed at her return. However, as she told him the events of what had happened to cause her absence, his excitement waned. Rachel told Mark she'd been held captive whilst in a coma and had since given birth to Mark's baby. The alarm bells immediately started ringing for Mark. Firstly, Rachel had only been missing for a few weeks. And secondly, they'd only known each other a couple of months and had never met in real life so it was impossible for them to have conceived a child. But before Mark could get any answers to his questions, Rachel disappeared again. He was confused, just left, devastated by what had just happened. Another new user, Janet Dobinson, joined the Manchester Teens chat room and instantly made an impression. She introduced herself as a married 44-year-old woman and from the offset explained she wasn't interested in idle teen chit-chat she had no time for it. She announced that she was looking for someone special and she had found it in 16-year-old Mark. In a private chat, she told Mark that as Lindsay had trusted him, she too would trust him. She went on to explain she was also a member of MI6 but held a much more senior role than Lindsay had. Janet was in fact number three in the hierarchy of the British Intelligence Service and reported directly to the Queen and the then Prime Minister Tony Blair. She said she used her cover as a real estate agent to travel the country without questions being asked. Mark was unsurprisingly sceptical of her claims, given his recent history in the chat room, but nevertheless, curiosity got the better of him, and he went along with what she was saying. Again, stressing that as Lindsay had trusted Mark, Janet felt we could keep a secret. She explained that Mark was in fact being covertly tested by MI6 and now they wanted to recruit him as an agent. She further explained that he would be compensated with wages in the millions and an opportunity to meet Queen Elizabeth II and Tony Blair. After speaking at length to Janet, things seemed to click into place for Mark. He was convinced that Janet was the real deal and he eagerly accepted the once-in-a-lifetime offer. Janice explained that before he could be taken to London for his MI6 briefing, Mark would need to prove himself capable of completing top-secret assignments. Once he had done so, he would receive his agent number and a licence to kill. As part of his initiation, he was required to act as a bodyguard to an important Manchester teenager 
and fellow MI6 operative, whose name was James Bell. His orders were clear. No one, including James Bell, was to know that Mark had been contacted to act as his protector. Mark was curious as to what made James such an important person that he required a bodyguard. After receiving approval from her bosses and Tony Blair himself, Janet explained that lying at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean there was a safe. That safe contained jewels worth a staggering £568 billion and while several countries knew about the existence of the safe, there was only one person who knew the combination to it and that was Queen Elizabeth. Janet further explained as the Queen would be unable to access the safe herself to input the combination, she had trusted one other person with the code and that person was none other than James Bell. Mark was stunned to learn that James Bell was in fact his best friend John. Mark, taking his assignment very seriously, quickly sprang into action and asked John if he wanted to hang out more often. Oblivious to what was really going on, John accepted the offer and the two teenagers started to meet regularly after school, spending all their spare time together. This sudden and intense friendship that seemed to come out of nowhere had not gone unnoticed and the two teenagers' parents were concerned about their welfare. The mums insisted on meeting each other to ensure that each child was who they said they were and came from decent families. After all, the internet was still a relatively new thing to most people and there were some horror stories out there about people not being who they claimed to be. Having finally met each other, the mum's concerns soon turned to relief and they gave their blessing for the friendship, happy that their boys had found each other and would be spending more time outside rather than just stuck indoors on their computers. Mark was desperate to prove himself. He began reporting back to Janet, regularly giving her updates. Janet approved of his progress but gave Mark a gentle warning. He was himself under surveillance by other British agents to ensure he was carrying out his mission. To prove this, Janet gave Mark two locations that the teen had been spotted at, what they were wearing, and what they were doing at the time. Mark found himself spooked by this, yet equally excited at the prospects of being watched. He took to challenging himself to see if he could spot the agents. Was it the bus driver, or the woman with the pushchair in the park perhaps? This only strengthened Mark's resolve not to fail in his initiation. Mark's next assignment was a simple one, which was to get John out of school without raising any suspicion. Mark came up with a plan. He would convince the school administrators that John's mum had sent him to take John to a dental appointment. Taking a deep breath, he puffed out his chest, head held high, and confidently walked into the school. His ruse was successful and John delighted in the prospect of skipping school. The two best friends spent the day shopping, but John's mum had been alerted to her son leaving school early, and she began to panic. Checking his computer for any hint about where he may have gone, she stumbled upon messages between a woman called Janet Dobson and John. Alarmed at what she was reading, she headed to Stockport, where she found John hanging out at Mark's house. After the initial relief of finding her son safe, she demanded to speak to Mark's parents, who in turn searched Mark's computer, and they found similar messages from Janet. The mums were shocked and explained to their boys that not everyone on the internet is who they claimed to be, and they were both banned from having any further contact with Janet. 
But after a brief break, the two boys managed to get around their parents' restrictions and were soon back online in their chat rooms. Mark was quick to fall back under the command of Janet, and he was told that the latest assignment was a matter of national security. She told him if he didn't complete this urgent task, her job and her life were at risk. Janet explained that his new mission was to make John look gay by performing a sex act on the younger boy. When Mark questioned why he had to make John look gay, Janet told him that her superiors had not authorised her to explain why this needed to be done. She gently reminded him he was under surveillance at all times by undercover operatives who were monitoring him to decide if he really was ready to join MI6 and the stakes were high. While spending the weekend at John's house, Mark knew this was the opportunity to carry out his latest assignment. He reported back to Janet that the two boys had watched pornography together before engaging in oral sex. Janet was pleased he had completed his mission and told Mark that the agents watching him had confirmed he was telling the truth. He had finally passed his initiation. As a reward, he would soon meet the Defence Secretary and the Prime Minister. He would be handed £500,000 in cash, a gun and a licence to kill. He was to become an official agent of MI6. Mark was keen to rise up the ranks in his new job but things were about to take a serious turn. When sat at his computer, he saw the familiar Janet Dobinson is online pop up, followed by a rather shocking message. It read, Could you kill someone close to you? Mark stared at the screen for what seemed like forever before eventually replying, Yeah, I could. There's my answer. Mark's first official assignment as a Secret Service agent was to be an assassination. And next week, we will conclude this shocking story. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspects of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and join over 92,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7. I was interviewed by Stuart, host of the British Murders Podcast this week, and our chat, which lasted for over an hour, is now available on his British Murders podcast and British Murders YouTube channel. If you get a chance, why not take a listen to some of our conversation about all things true crime podcasting. If you watch on YouTube, you can see my Larry shirt as well. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime for bonus episodes. There are actually 71 of them and loads of other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Angela White, Sam Barnard, Rob Hampton, Mandy and Margaret Lloyd. Your support is so much appreciated. Okay, so that's all for me for this week, the host of the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast. Don't forget to join me next week for the concluding part of this story. But until then, please do take it easy. And remember, <laughs> despite all the others, Stay classy. Cheerio for now. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.